0: Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan, from Salesloft. Hey, salespeople! Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Connor Strapp to the show. Welcome, Connor.
1: Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me.
0: I had recently posted on LinkedIn because I've interviewed a number of top Presidents Club winning AES, and I wanted to move on to talk to some some top. President's Club winning sales leaders, and your name came up on on that, on that list. Uh, so Connor is the Senior Division Vice President of Sales at Insight Software. They are a financial analysis platform that helps the office of the CIO become a better strategic partner to the business. And um, we're not going to talk too much about financial software, but based on kind of who they are and what they do, we are going to talk about this whole concept of vitamin versus aspirin. Which is how do you position your product as a need to have rather than a nice to have? That'll be the kind of main starting off point that we we go into. But I love to get to know our guests a little better first. And I'm a book nerd, and Connor appears to be a reader too. So I was curious, Connor, what's a most recent book you've read, and you know maybe what are one or two of the key takeaways you got from that book?
1: Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, so. Not necessarily sales-related, um, but I do like to, to read or listen to a wide array of, of books and audiobooks. And most recently, it was Dave Grohl's Storyteller. I guess one takeaway from the book that I thought was really interesting is everybody's different and you have to encourage people's passions, even if it's not really aligned with your own. And the example of Dave Grohl is he talks about his mother and father, and he wasn't a great student. His dad was, um, was a businessman, wanted to take the kind of straight narrow conservative path, but Dave Grohl's passion was music. So he, he failed in school, ended up dropping out before he even finished high school and father cut ties was not supportive to say the least of this decision, but his mom, on the other hand said, the only thing she said when he told his mom that he was going to leave high school to go be in a band was she says, well, you better be damn good at it. So she supported his decision. And ultimately, you know, Dave Grohl went on to, to, to be in Nirvana um, and then into Foo Fighters, very successful musician, household name. And I think that's important just because everybody's different. And if you think of it as a leadership, from a leadership perspective, if you try to teach everyone to act the same way, you're going to lose out on a lot of people's creativity and where they really excel. So you can't lead everybody the same way. You have to understand their passions and motivations, and you have to really help them achieve their
0: goals. Did you know what you wanted to do when you were in your teenage years, or did that come to you later? What was your your passion when you were 15?
1: (laughs) Definitely, I did not know what I wanted to do. Um, I thought when I graduated high school that I wanted to be a forensic scientist until I found out that forensic sciences, a lot of paperwork and tracking evidence. It's about 99% of that stuff and 1% actually dealing with the cool blood splatter and everything else. Um, so once I figured that out, I, I was in college, tried a bunch of different things. Um, I actually wanted to go into the arts and go into acting. Not a lot of people know that, but wanted to have a backup plan. So I was like, all right, well, I'll take the, I'll double major, I'll do the creative stuff, and then I'll, I'll get a business degree. And I was like, well, I'll do marketing because that uh, helps the the creative juices flow. So I went into marketing and actually at UNCW, there are two tracks uh, with marketing. It was the first year they did this and it was a marketing, which was kind of a lead gen advertising, supporting of sales type marketing role. And then they actually had a professional selling track, which focused on sales, Salesforce automation and a bunch of other stuff. Um, It was the first year they did that and I hopped into that track. Um, And that's where I started to get really passionate about sales. Are there
0: some things that you learned at at UNC Wilmington that you apply that you know that you were able to apply when you actually got in the workplace? Yeah,
1: definitely. They did a really good job with that education track. They, I mean, we even hopped into CRM in school. So that was something that I was exposed to prior to even joining the workforce. Um, And then there was a ton of role play with selling experiences and that's where you really really get into the nitty gritty without being into a real life selling scenario. So you kind of got put in the hot seat without having to be put in the hot seat, still have the training wheels on a little bit. Great
0: program. Well, you know, I wanted to introduce the uh, the topic of this aspirin versus vitamin concept and every company wants to position their product as a need to have and that's probably in the, uh, the the eye of the beholder, right? It's in the eye of the prospect whether it's a nice to have or need to have. You know, you you've been Putting some awesome tenure in at insight software you've been there for six years, rose up the ranks from BDR through account executive senior account executive all the way on up to uh, division VP and and senior division VP I, I understand you're a financial analysis platform, but where do you sit and how do you position that as as more of a uh, need to have than a nice to have
1: yeah so I mean we work across industries across the markets mid market Um, SMB, enterprise-type companies, and we help CFOs in a number of different ways. It could be reporting analytics, it could be tax solutions, budgeting solutions. But the fact of the matter is, is ultimately a company's financial processes, a need to have is an accounting system. And when we start to talk about these bolt-ons, I can certainly argue all day that it's a need to have. But a lot of the conventional mindset is that you know, we've always done it this way for the past 20, 30 years, um, and everything's running just fine. So it's obviously not a need to have. But what's really important in, in the sales process for us is that we uncover how our solutions can actually impact the bottom line and build a strong business case around it. So we're, we're trying to tie the solutions to increasing revenue, decreasing cost, mitigating risk, so people can actually see the impact on, on their bottom line and their business. So then it is a need to have I guess like one kind of funky example could be, let's say you invent, and this is off the cup, by the way, so I might screw this up. Let's say you invent a, a, a seat warmer for lawnmowers or something like that. And you start going after lawn care companies and you're saying, hey, here's this, this seat warmer for, for your lawnmowers. It costs a couple thousand bucks. It's going to increase the comfort of the folks that are in the field. It's going to make them more productive. It's going to be really nice. It's a nice They say, yeah, it sounds great. Um, I'm sure they'd love that. But ultimately, that's not going to help us sell more lawn care services. But if you can take this and turn it around and say, well, with the the seat warmer for the lawnmower, your folks are going to be more comfortable and they're going to stay in the field for X amount more time. It's going to result in 10 more lawns cut over the course of a month. Then it becomes a need to have. You're talking about increased productivity that's ultimately going to improve the performance of the business. At that point, it would be a no brainer to buy it. That's what we're really trying to do is help open the eyes and create a compelling business case that our solutions are a need to have and it would be fiscally irresponsible not to invest.
0: This concept has been around in some forms, right, with ROI calculators for you know for for quite some time. On the buying side, how receptive are buyers to you know to those ROI calculators? I sometimes think right myself as a buyer. If someone gives me an ROI calculator, yeah, it's helpful. You know, even if I have budget, I need to still go to my CFO to approve a purchase, and he's going to ask me for a business case and an ROI. But you know, he may or may not discount the ROI calculator that the vendor partner had provided me. How do you, how do you get over that hurdle with your prospects?
1: Yeah, I think you just have to really dig down to what's important to the business and what their key initiatives are. I've seen a lot of ROI calculators that are productivity-based. They're almost subjective to where you're saying, all right, you're going to save 50 hours a month. This person costs this much per hour. Here's the increase in productivity and cost savings. I, I think that's good. And it's a starting point. But if you go a step further and if you just ask the question and say, how can you see XYZ solution increasing revenue, decreasing costs, or mitigating risk, and leave it out in the air, see what they come up with. A lot of times you'll get really, really good answers. And an example could be like a, an architecture engineering company. And you ask that question, they say, all right, I've got this financial reporting tool now. And I could see that if we are able to, see the numbers in real time, we might be able to catch a project X weeks earlier before it becomes unprofitable. And now we're actually making a million dollars on this project versus losing a million dollars. That's very, very impactful for a CFO to say, wait, you're telling me that there's a risk of this project being a million dollars unprofitable and we can catch it quicker. I think those types of examples, when you really get a prospect thinking are they add gravy on top of that ROI calculator. Because I think the ROI calculator is important, but I think you have to take it a step further than productivity.
0: Yeah, the other thing I'm, uh, I think there's a, there's a bit of a debate out there on right now is who is the person that actually constructs these business cases. You know, we've seen the hyper-segmentation, I guess it's a continuation of the predictable revenue model, right? But of, of the sales role where you, you formerly, and you still have some full cycle, reps who, who do everything as we broke out the SDR function, from the AE function, from the AM function, from the CSM function, from the renewal manager function, like on and on and on, you know then we had sales engineers who were technical specialists, and then now you're starting to see this value engineering role emerge either pre-sale or pro-sale, and you know these folks are another thing that I think AEs eventually going ridic- to slice AEs down into project managers or something like that i don't exactly know what will be left after we sliced and diced into oblivion for you guys at, at insight software who does that value engineering work is that a, a different team or is it the account executive themselves
1: it's the account executive but it's in concert and this may be an obvious statement but it's definitely in concert with the buyer themselves so with the business cases i mean we're segmented by industry the people that RAES aes know their industries inside and out so they they know typically probably 65, 70% of a business case when they go in, but they have to work with the the prospect to get that other 35, 30% and to really tailor for that specific company. I mean, that's a step in our process. Um, and I think having a repeatable process is really important too. I don't want to say we require a business case build, but it's something where we definitely um, encourage it in every single sales cycle. So after discovery, after demo, it can be with pricing, before pricing, we're scheduling a call that for business case build with the prospect. And if they're not willing to do that for whatever reason, then to your point earlier, that could be a, a, a solid red flag of how good is your deal. We typically come in with a framework on what we've learned in discovery in demos, and demos and previous experience, um, and then we lean on them to to ensure that they're they're customizing that business case with us.
0: As you do that, do you require, I often think of one extra step, right, which is another test that comes before you do anything else, which is after discovery and demo to make sure that they loop in one other person, at least one other person from their side. I feel that's one of the best tests in B2B of more serious buyer versus tire kicker is that if they're not willing to pull in a colleague, sure, I would love it for to be their boss, right, or somebody else with even more power. But even just bringing in anybody else <laughs> into the conversation, it, I think, is an incredible
1: test of, of whether they're kicking the tires or, or more serious. Yeah, definitely. Um, multi-threading these accounts is extremely important. We talk a lot about champion testing. And if you haven't multi-threaded an account, you don't have any other, any other contacts that you've spoken to. If you test your champion and they fail, then you're back to square one if you haven't talked to anybody else. You need somebody selling on your behalf. And it it becomes a lot harder if you haven't been introduced to anybody within the account. You really go back almost to the prospecting stage at that point.
0: Besides the things we've talked about around champion testing, I'm wondering are there ever any instances where, you know, you had done these things we talked about and you thought you had a champion, but they turned out to not be? And what would you have done differently in that situation to
1: to get that right? That's a really good question. I mean, we definitely had people we thought were champions and ultimately they ended up being coaches or just not solid champions. And I, I think the one big thing that we always try to caution the team around now is that when you're operating in the mid-market, lower mid-market, a lot of times you will have somebody that says, look, I've been here 10, 15 years. I know what it takes to get something purchased. Just give me the, the deets and I'll go run and I'll get it done. And the inclination there is always to be like, all right, you know, sounds good. I trust you. But we see that so there's this element of, of slow down to go fast that's really important. And I kind of stole that from John McMahon and his recent book, uh, The Qualified Sales Leader. It's making sure that you don't skip steps in your sales process that are important and this being one of them. So you can either avoid losing a deal or closing a small deal. To answer your question, yes, I think there have been times where we've skipped steps because we've been in a comfort zone, and we need to make sure that we don't do that. The other thing I wanted to circle back on was
0: you mentioned just in passing that you guys are segmented by by industry. So, you know, traditional segmentation is one or more of size, industry, and geography. What's led you to specifically to use industry as
1: your primary segmentation dimension? We do size as well, too. So we have a commercial team and an enterprise team. But the industry piece is really important because our buyers are vastly different industry by industry and their endpoints are different. And also their, their language is different. So in finance and accounting, the type of reporting that you do in the construction industry is vastly different than what you would do in the manufacturing industry. So we actually did at one point segment by GEO and we thought this was a really good idea because we, we were making a lot of acquisitions. We had a lot of new tools and we were like, all right, we're going to give the refs all these awesome solutions to go sell within their geo. They'll enter into an account. And if one solution doesn't fit, then they'll have this other solution that that does. And in theory, it sounds good. But what it led to was people getting comfortable within a single solution. And it also led to people not having subject matter expertise based on the industry that, that they are operating in, um, which led to a loss of credibility in sales cycles. So when we started focusing by industry, the credibility of the reps went up, their um, expertise of the actual industry that they're, they're working in became the language that they spoke and it worked a lot better. So it's definitely the, the right way for, for us to do it. I don't know if that's the right way for everybody. Everyone's company is different, but that's why we took that route.
0: I think you're spot on if the, as you said, if the pain points and the language is different by industry, then that segmentation is, is absolutely critical. And I was once in an environment where we sold mostly to IT people, and then we added on a product that was for supply chain and manufacturing people. And, you know, mistake we made was trying to have those IT people sell to those other, you know, the manufacturing folks. And it was, it was different pain, different language. They just, and it, and it really was like, truly learning a foreign language. And you just can't expect people to learn that a overnight. And then not everyone's even going to be able to learn to speak that other language. So we had to approach it very, very differently. On the point of industry, it also makes me think about hiring. I mean, the holy grail is to be able to hire people who have both sales experience and relevant industry experience. It's hard enough to hire anybody right now, let alone somebody who matches both of those qualifications. So I'm curious, you know, based on your hiring experience, if you had to hire somebody, you know, let's say with a manufacturing or construction background, but you had to teach them sales, or you could hire somebody with a sales background, but you had to teach them construction, what have you found to be most effective?
1: Yeah, that's a hot topic. Um, I'd say, personally, I like to hire based on work ethic, grit, passionate curiosity, and creativity. Those are my three big ones. And now if I can get sales experience, I can get industry experience too, that's fine. But those are the, the latter part of, of what I'm looking for. I mean, we look for high potential reps. They may have very little sales experience or no sales experience. They may be coming straight out of college. They could be coming from a completely separate industry. But if they exhibit a level of grit and a level of passionate curiosity, and an ability to be creative then that trumps for me any sort of expertise or experience that they have in the past
0: so I, I love that you you know you have that kind of framework, and it sounds like you're you're even going to the if I were to have a two by two of industry expertise, no industry expertise, sales expertise, no ex- sales expertise, you may not have the luxury of hiring in you know any of the upper right upper left lower right, you're actually going for you know, people that they're actually maybe out of, out of that, but have a set of those characteristics, you know, we don't have to focus on all of them, but those are things that are notoriously hard to assess. Passionate curiosity, creativity, and grit. Uh, they're very, very difficult to assess in an, in an interview, maybe pick any one of them. And I'm, I'm curious how you actually validate that the person's not just a good interviewer and, and pulling the
1: wool over your eyes. How do you, how do you test for that? Yeah, it's hard. I'll I'll pick the easy one for me, or at least I think it's the the easiest. None of them are easy by any means, but I think you can certainly see passion and curiosity in an interview process. You can tell by the way people ask questions. You can tell by the way people are taking notes. You can tell when you know if somebody if somebody asks me a question and I respond, and then they say, "Hey, this piece of what you just said was really interesting. Can you expand on that?" And they're genuinely interested then that's when someone's starting to to exhibit that type of curiosity that I'm looking for. And I think the the big piece of that is the question asking. It's actually very surprising the amount of people that I always try to, and not try to give like a tools of the trade here, but I always try to split up the first interview half and half. I'm asking questions for the first half and then I leave the second half of the interview for the candidate to ask questions. And it really is surprising the amount of people that come to an interview with vanilla questions and, and you know they're important but it's something like you know describe the company culture or what's the day to day look like or what percentage of your sales or or your sales reps are hitting quota like those are those are what I would call qualifying questions. But the people that get a lot deeper are the people that that I'm looking for. And then some people only ask like a question or two and then they're like nope, I'm good. And that's a huge red flag for me.
0: Hmm. Yeah, because they're if they're not curious in the interview, they're not going to be curious when they're with customers that they need to be quick on their feet with with additional questions. I do think percent of reps hitting quota is a smart question for for reps to ask. The, the other one I think is super smart and I love, and it's, it's shockingly rare, anybody who's interviewing for a sales rep at the very end of the interview should say, given everything you know about me, given the conversation we've had today, do you have any reservations about hiring me for the role? I think that's the best question ever because – That's what I want them asking customers is like, you know, given where we are, given what you've learned so far, do you have any current objections
1: to working with Insight software? Yeah. And it's, it gives you a chance to address any concerns that the interviewer may have. And I, I learned that the hard way when I was interviewing for my first job out of college, I did not ask that question. And I ultimately did not receive an offer because I said something to the effect of, I want to be in the field. I want to be talking to people. I don't want to be in a cube all day or, or something like that. And the feedback was you didn't get an offer because the job's in a cube all day and you said you didn't want to do that. I was like, well, that's not exactly what I meant. Like there's other elements of the job. Like I could have definitely clarified that piece and maybe got an offer, but you know, hindsight's 20 So if you ask that question, you get a chance to address any concerns. So I do think that's very important. I asked a friend about
0: this particular assessment of of curiosity, and he had an answer that stuck with me. His name is Dan Murphy. I worked with him for years at at Gartner, and he's remained a friend ever since. He's a uh, sales leader. And he asked the following question. He says, in your preparation for this interview, what did you learn about me? And I think it's a killer question, right? Because that shows conscientiousness and preparation that you want people to be doing with their customers as well. Have you ever been in a situation where, where you feel like somebody, however, has over-researched you and it gets creepy? Is, that, is, is there a line to
1: that can be crossed there? I'm sure there definitely is. I'm not sure I've experienced that one myself, but I'm sure if they're like, hey, love the paint that you put on the front of your house or uh, you know, on Google, or if I can see that you have a great Pyrenees, that might get a little bit creepy. But yeah, I'm not sure I've experienced that one. There probably is a line somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I think anything on LinkedIn, right,
0: is, is probably fair game and, and anything that if they listen to this podcast and they bring up something that you brought up here, right? I mean, that's, that's perfectly fair game from a research point of view. My last question, speaking of LinkedIn profiles is on your headline for LinkedIn, you've got two things that make sense. And then one that's eyebrow raising. And if people could see you were audio only, but if people could see you you just smiled and raised your eyebrows, you know, it's coming. So it says, Connor Strap, sales leader. Cool. I get it. SaaS enthusiast. Awesome. I dig that. And then the third one is a little unexpected. Jedi Knight.
1: So where does the Jedi Knight thing come from? Yeah, I'm just a huge Star Wars fan. And I think it's, you know, there's a, I don't know. I think that people take, or you can get into the trap of taking LinkedIn and your business professional role a little seriously and, or too seriously. And I think, you know, we're all people. So I like to inject a little bit about what's uh, what I like, and I like Star Wars a lot. I didn't watch Disney movies as a kid. I always watched star wars from from a very young age, just trying to inject something personal. Well, awesome.
0: It was really great having you and And since you know you're obviously hiring folks, I presume the best way for people to get in touch with you is via LinkedIn.
1: Yeah, sure. reach out to me um, on LinkedIn. I'm very responsive. Um, or you can give me an email at connor dot strap at insidesoftware.com, that's c-o-n-n-o-r dot s-t-r-a-p-p
0: well bold of you to share your email address and hopefully that gets you some some great talent thanks so much for being on
1: connor thanks jeremy <laughs> it was a blast appreciate it
0: hey salespeople is a production made in partnership with frequency media i'm your host jeremy donovan this podcast is available on apple podcasts spotify and wherever podcasts are found Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.